You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, y'all. Hey, Kyle. Good to see you. And today we are joined by Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the author of many books, including Storm Tossed Family, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, Adopted for Life, and the recently released The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Dr. Moore, we're honored to have you on the show. Thanks for jumping in. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I just want to say just how tremendously grateful I am. I'm sure you've heard this before when you've jumped on other shows and you've been hosting other places. I pastor a Southern Baptist church and I am tremendously grateful for your work Thank as you. uh, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and for your writing. We're an adoptive family and I'm tremendously mm. grateful for your book, Adopted for Life. It was a compass in the eye of a storm for me and my family. And I am tremendously grateful for your advocacy and your writing on that topic. Thank you. Amen. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. Absolutely. And we share something in common. And I don't know that, I don't, I've never talked about this with JT and Jen. They're always underplaying their music interests. Uh, But we share a love for true, pure country music. Oh, yes. Yeah. Not, not, Florida Georgia line. No. no. <laughs> None of the contemporary perversion. We're talking about Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, Highwaymen. Yeah. That's something my grandfather gave me. And I could probably spend this whole episode just talking to you about Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard well, and the Highwaymen. I genuinely just turned off Highwaymen uh, right before I came on this uh, came on this broadcast, right before uh, their, their cover of Pilgrim Chapter 33. So. That's absolutely what's the beautiful. what's the cutoff date? When did it go south? Oh, I guess go south is kind of a play on words. But when did country <laughs> music uh, it, start did it, to drop it off? It never went away, but it just sort of branched out. And so uh-huh. some of the exiles, a lot of them went to Texas, as a matter of fact, and uh, where they could do what they wanted to do without the industry. Um, Willie. Willie and Waylon and yeah. uh, folks like that. So, yeah. That will be a different conversation for a different episode, but I'm going to, one day I'm going to get you on the line and we're going to do a whole Knowing Faith episode about the value and virtue. I was worried that the turn you were going to make here, Kyle, was speaking of the cultural mandate and cultivating beauty. (laughs) It's like, oh no, here it comes. (laughs) That would have been been perfect. That would have been perfect. And, uh, but that is what we're talking about today. We're talking about the Imago Dei and the cultural mandate. You know, over the course of season five of Knowing Faith, we're exploring Genesis 1 through 11 and Every once in a while, we'll do a deep dive on a specific passage and some core doctrines that emerge from that passage. And today, we're focusing specifically on Genesis 1, 26 through 30, and looking at what does it mean to be an image bearer, and what is the cultural mandate. And so we've covered the context around the original audience of Genesis in previous episodes. We've talked about the who of creation, who this God who has created all things Uh, was and is and will always be. We have talked about the first few days of creation. We've talked about the framework of God creating on days one through three, a space, and then four through six, filling that space. But today we're going to focus in on God's creation of humanity, of man and woman, of Adam and Eve, and what it means to be a bearer of the image of God. And so this is a short enough passage that it may just be helpful for us to just read it um, and then for us to kind of dive into it a little bit. Would that be okay with everybody? If I read God's word, everybody everybody on board with the reading of scripture? 
That feels like the safest thing we'll probably do on the whole podcast. (laughs) True enough. Um, Well, let me read verses 26 through 30, and then we'll come back through and just walk through them. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. and Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So this is the word of the Lord. Uh, And we get to talk about what it means to be an image bearer of God. So let's just start there. When we're talking about this, this doctrine of Imago Dei, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Does it mean that we actually, like Dr. Moore, when, I, when we hear that, does it mean that I, I look like God? I think it is a wrong to try to boil the image of God down to one thing. Uh, and I think sometimes people try to do that. And so what they want to say is, well, um, the image of God means that you're rational, uh, but angels are rational. The serpent is hyper-rational in Genesis 3, or uh, to say, well, it means that you're morally accountable and in communion with God. Again, angels are as well. Uh, some some sects have tried to say it's because you look uh, physically look like God, uh, and I don't think that's right either. I think instead it, it means that humanity is uh, created as a sign uh, of God's presence in a unique way that can't just be boiled down to one thing. And so if I, if I had to say, uh, point to one thing that would indicate the image of God, uh, it, you have to choose one. I would say restlessness, the sense of um, what Walker Percy used to talk about when he said humanity's not just an organism and an environment, that there's a, uh, a sense of, of longing for something else and, and for a purpose that's there. And so I think that's the case. And so when we say that humanity is made in the image of God, I think that sign language of God's presence and God's rule um, is something that's indicated to the rest of the creation. So when you come to Romans 8, mm-hmm. for instance, where Paul talks about the creation is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God. Uh, I think that's what uh, image is. So this this idea of uh, the, uh, key to the image bearing status is. Longing? I think it's I think it's longing for a, a future, and it also is a pointing away from itself uh, uh, toward something else. So there's a uh, there, there's a sign that's being given uh, in humanity of the fact that that the world is not just a machine. Uh, there's a personal involvement from God. Wow, right off the bat, we're into um, something that I think I was not prepared for. But I, uh, And I think that one of the things that's so easy, you're right, because it's very easy for us to feel like, well, let's take the image-bearing status down, and I don't know how many books I've read on this or looked at it, and, and tie it directly to some for- function, 
right? So, you know, uh, humans are social creatures, so that's our image-bearing status. We, we, bear, we bear the image of God because we're built for community, or we bear the image of God because we exercise rule. But beyond that, it's kind of the conglomeration of all of those things that mm-hmm. are depicting to the world, the cosmos. There is a creator beyond, and we are a reflection of that uniquely so, right? Is that? Yeah, and I don't think you can understand image of God. I think Genesis uh, 1 and 2 intentionally leaves image of God as somewhat of a mystery because that's going to be resolved uh, in the New Testament with Mm -hmm. um, Hebrews 1, for instance, uh, and Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what image of God uh, is, I don't think you can do that with abstractions. I think you have to see it where it is clearest, and that's in Jesus, which doesn't uh, doesn't give an answer to all the mysteries. It creates uh, more mysteries. So I think the key uh, passage is uh, when, if you had to say, give me one passage that would explain the image of God, it would probably be Jesus when he speaks to the winds and the waves, um, when when the storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee, and they obey him. And even then, the reaction of the disciples is to say, who is this? that even the winds and the waves obey him. They're not accustomed to that kind of organic uh, relatedness between humanity and the rest of the world the way that it was originally intended to be because obviously all we know is the post-fall world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Wait, are you saying that if humans had not fallen, we would be able to speak to the winds and the waves? Yes, I do think that, yes. So far, you've said like three things that I fully did not see coming, and I need a minute to process them. <laughs> no, I am, I'm actually super excited that we're talking about this thing right here, because JT and I have talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, yes. Was it, wait, was there some call you all had before <laughs> I got on where, where I didn't... calls that you're not on, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 because Dr. Moore, now we might be going beyond the scope of what we had planned, but you, you brought us there, so what I'm going to hold wrong? you to it. But... <laughs> But so when, when Jesus is speaking to the wind and the waves, what you've just said is we are getting a picture of what whole or full or good Adamic rule and reign looks like. Is that yeah, accurate? Because humanity is created, again, to be a sign and to be um, a, an indication and a shorthand for God. So God is is ruling through humanity, which is, of course, what he ultimately does in Jesus. So you've got an integrity mm-hmm to the creation. There, there's a harmony. What's, what's happened in the fall is that there's been a loss of that harmony so that the creation um, does not recognize uh, Adam, uh, does not recognize humanity as, uh, as being a representative of God. And so that's the reason why you have, you know, the, 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 we'll talk about the mandate later on, but the mandate is to go out of Eden, place that God had created as a as a harmonious environment for the man and the woman, go out from that and to uh, and to take everything under their feet, which we'll talk about what that means later on. But um, the fall doesn't take that away, but it does put frustration uh, to it. And why is there frustration? I think it's because there's a lack of um, there's a lack of harmony between the image bearer and uh, and the the ecosystem that he or she is in. And so Jesus restores that, which is was one of the reasons why he's so remarkable. What they, what the creation recognizes, and again, we're not used to thinking this way 
because uh, Wendell Berry talks about this in his little book, Life is a Miracle, the reigning metaphor that we've come to accept is of the, the, the creation as a machine, as being dead. Mm. But that's not the, the reigning metaphor that uh, the biblical world had or the biblical text has, which sees the creation as being, uh, in a very real sense, alive. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's one of the reasons why it's very difficult for us to perceive that. One thing I want to make sure we have the that was uh, when I was first learning, first reading my Bible, first going to seminary and learning theology that that uh, kind of piqued my interest for image bearing was this idea that in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, to be an image bearer meant to have kind of a royal status, which meant lots of people who the Bible would call image bearers, other ancient Near Eastern cultures would not have seen as image bearers. So Pharaoh bears God's image and other kings and queens bear God's image. But here what you have, Dr. Moore, I'd love to hear you you talk a bit about it, is kind of a democratization of representation and dignity, which is given to all people, not just a king. Though, yes, we certainly see it most clearly manifest in King Jesus, but it's also something that, as you were just talking about, should be true of all of humanity. Well, and that's what the New Testament, that's the point the New Testament is making, is Jesus, by taking on humanity, uh, has identified himself with all of humanity and with each uh, individual human being. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, you're right, Pharaoh, what Pharaoh uh, wanted to to see is there being Egyptians who were able to have dominion over Israelites. So there's a, he rules over them ruthlessly, some of the uh, translations put it. But if you look at what's going on in Genesis, you have uh, the man and the woman being given dominion. And again, we can define later on what that means over everything that has come a- along uh, uh, previously in the text, except for uh, one another. They, they don't have, humanity mm-hmm. doesn't have dominion over humanity. And so that, that's one of the reasons why um, I think if you look at this, this is uh, presented as the sixth day uh, in Genesis, humanity is coming as part of that sixth day. But what comes after that is the seventh day, which I think is indicating, among other things, that humanity is not intended to be ultimate. That humanity is created for another purpose, and that purpose seems to be kind of superfluous if you look at it. It's a day where nothing mm-hmm. happens. Uh, well, of course, everything happens. It's, it's, it's Sabbath. And right. I think that if you make humanity ultimate, and usually the way that that happens is by saying this part of humanity or this person in humanity is more than or better than uh, the others – then what you end up with in Revelation 13 is not that human beings become more like God. They think they are, but they're becoming more like animals. Uh, They they become a beast, Mm -hmm. and the number of the beast is what? Six, six, six. Uh, That Make that sixth day ultimate, and what you end up with is is animalism, not, not imaging God. God. I just, Kyle, your eyes just explode a little bit. Yeah. I was watching Kyle's face while you were talking. <laughs> no, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not surprised uh, that uh, we're having those moments because if you followed Dr. Moore's work uh, for any length of time, you understand this is pretty typical when you're reading Dr. Moore or listening to Dr. Moore. And yet it does still feel mildly embarrassing. <laughs> it does. Yes. It does. Um, I want to circle back to something you said initially, one of the first three things that threw me off. Um, you talked about that to bear the image of God is rooted in longing 
And um, that jumped out at me because if we're looking at pre-fall humanity, the idea of longing is not something I think that people associate with perfect human beings. So can you talk a little more about what you mean about being created for longing um, when sin has not yet entered the world? Well, uh, first of all, what I would say is, uh, the question is, what would you look to uh, in yourself or in other people uh, to sort of sum up what the image of God is? And I would say uh, it would be more longing than it would be, say, uh, the fact that I know how to say two plus two equals four. Uh, but beyond that, I would say, uh, even in the Genesis 1 text, uh, what you have is, uh, is not perfection in the sense of, of what perfection actually means, which is completion. That awaits uh, the kingdom of, of Jesus. And so that you have even in, in Genesis 1, the word that God is giving to the man and the woman is about the future. And it's a future that's not yet realized. You uh, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the creation around you. So it, even in Genesis 1, what you're looking toward is, Gen- is uh, Revelation 22. So, there's a, so there is a lack even in the initial creation. It's good, but it is not yet complete, I guess, is the way right. you might say it. Yes, yeah. because, because what, uh, what's, what's intended to happen is incarnation. Uh, God, uh, God is intending from the very beginning to dwell with us uh, in Jesus Christ, and and so uh, the the fact that uh, when when I say longing, well, what I mean is that there's not um, there's a sense in which a human being is able to recognize there's there's something uh, that I'm intended for that isn't yet here in a way that, say, squirrels uh, and, uh, and primates aren't able to do. Right. Yeah. No, and I think that that's actually a really pivotal point that is often misunderstood. And I don't know, Jen, and I don't think you meant it this way, but I don't even know that I would say lack. Like, I don't know that, right, that we would say that there is a lack in creation, but that there is this potential, there's this opportunity, and that Adam and Eve are supposed to exercise their image bearing as a, kind of carrying forward or fulfilling of that potential? Is that, is that fair? Yes, I, I would say so. <laughs> uh, so when we talk about image bearing, we talk, and when we talk about what are some of the essential impl- implications to this doctrine? I mean, y- you've, spent, you've spent so many, so much time talking through this. I think about JT. I don't know if JT stole this from somebody. If so, we might just find out. Dr. Everything Warren. I've said, I've stolen from somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but JT has said... Uh, that a consequence of the doctrine of image bearing is there's no such thing as conditional dignity, yeah. right? Yeah. It's unconditional dignity for image bearers. What, what are some of the essential implications of the image of God, that doctrine in our life and in the life of the world? Well, uh, what JT has said is, is certainly true. It means that you don't define people in terms of their usefulness. Uh, Adam and Eve are created in the image of God from the very beginning. They're in, in the image of God. And that image then, then uh, shows itself and works itself out in various ways. But there's always a temptation to say, um, and, and often it's not done at the rational level. We don't sit and think this, but we act this way and say, uh, this person is more um, of a person or, or more important than somebody else. So you think of, um, 
you think of, uh, I, I was just talking the other day about a friend of mine who recently died. And I said, what was, what was unique about him is I would see him in big rooms of people. And one of the things that he was always doing is sort of looking beyond whoever he was talking to and scanning the room. But he was doing it in a different way than most people do. Uh, what he was doing is looking around saying, who here is feeling awkward and lonely mm -hmm. And do I need to go and, and talk to and be with? And, of course, that's completely reverse of what usually happens, mm -hmm. is, which is where people are thinking, you know, who's the most important person in this room or who's the person who can help me with something? And that happens everywhere. That, that happens mm -hmm. in Hollywood cocktail parties and it happens in nursing home uh, break rooms. It, it happens in mm -hmm. every arena of life, but the image of God. Uh, says that's not the case, that every human being is patterned after Jesus. So we don't define them by how fast they're moving or how much they're making or anything else. Well, and I guess that ties into the, the, the reason God can democratize uh, image bearing, so to speak, is because he's so clearly defined in the Genesis creation account as a God who has no needs. So if he if he doesn't need to have a transactional relationship with humans, he can truly uh, make the statement that we are all of equal value in a mm -hmm. way that humans can never say of one another. Right, and, and not only uh, if, if you look at the contrast between God and uh, th these other gods, who uh, it's a transactional relationship. You you mm -hmm. need rain from Baal. And what Baal needs from you is attention and worship. And the pattern in uh, in Genesis is just so completely different. Uh, it's not a transactional relationship. It's a um, it's an it's a communion, and a communion. Mm -hmm. I, and I think it's it's really important that that communion happens uh, over uh, feeding. God is the one who is feeding them. And uh, which is why I think it's important when the serpent comes in and tries to feed them. That That's not just about, mm -hmm. oh, here's a, an area you're not supposed to go and here's a thing that you're not supposed to do. It's an adoption that's uh, mm -hmm. an attempted adoption that's taking place uh, there. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. One of the things that we would talk about this uh, when we would teach the training program, Kyle, I'll never forget this line that you that you said. Everything that we're talking about right now is, and also Dr. Moore, I know the person that you're talking about and you're describing our friend exactly the right way. Uh, one of the things that is true for humans when we understand the doctrine of image bearing is it's honestly com- com- uh, incredibly inconvenient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, this changes the way I get to go about my daily life and every single interaction is an encounter with somebody who bears the image of God with dignity, value, worth, and representation. And so when we move from this functional understanding of what it means to interact with humans to kind of more of an ontological understanding of it, what it means who we're interacting with, it changes every interaction in of every single day. Well, and it also changes the way that you see yourself. So it's not just the mm. way that you see other people, although that's that's really important, but it also is how you see yourself. I mean, I know uh, so many people, I've known so many people over the years who lose a job or retire uh, even, and they don't know who they yeah. are anymore. Or a spouse mm-hmm. dies or a relationship ends and they they, they don't even know um, who they are and why is that the case is because they've defined themselves by that, by how useful they are to other people. So I think there are some people who could say, well, I, I don't really have this problem because I don't see other people as objects to be used. And, and often the, the problem is that that's a person who sees himself or sees herself as an object to be used or as a, a list of accomplishments or, or whatever. And the image of God just demolishes all of that. That's yeah. really good. Yeah. No, that is really good. And and I think it's pivotal for us to understand that this image bearing status and this reality that we are uh, image bearers of God before we move forward into discussing discussing the cultural mandate because that is more of the function, right? That's more of the 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 walking out, the doing. Uh, from that that emerges from who we are. And so if we were distinguishing, okay, so we are image bearers of God, what is really the cultural mandate? What is it, What is God's call on the lives of his people? You know, we, it says that God blesses them and it says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. What, what really is this call? Is it a call to get a job and have a bunch of kids? Is it a call to just do one of those two things? Is it a call to live in an agrarian society or to build an industrial society? I mean, what really is the thrust of the cultural mandate? I think it is to uh, be a sign of God in creating integrity and harmony. And so that's going to, that's going to mean cultivation, but cultivation looks different um, in, in, in different ways. So uh, if you think about, sometimes people think dominion, and that means paving over uh, everything. Well, well, that's, that's not right. the case. It's, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, it is an agricultural metaphor that's being used here, which means you can't, uh, you, you can't work a plot of land the way that uh, Pharaoh builds pyramids. 
Uh, you, you can't yeah. do that. You have to respect the createdness of that land and respond to it. So can dominion look like a, um, a magnificent cathedral being built? Yes. But can dominion also look like the fact that there's nothing being built uh, at the Grand Canyon? Yes. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a really great way of saying it, especially what you just said about Pharaoh. I mean, we've talked a lot about the context of the original audience, who's receiving this. And mm-hmm. I hadn't really considered the cultural mandate being, I've, I've thought about and heard a lot about the image of God doctrine being received by people who had been former slaves. But this cultural mandate is an invitation to work that's done in a way different than the hundreds of years of work that they have done under Pharaoh. Well, yes, and and not only that, but think about in Exodus, uh, Pharaoh is building these storage uh, cities that he's naming for himself to put his stuff in. That's the image of Pharaoh. I mean, we, we could even see that now with the pyramids. They're, they're images of, uh, of Pharaohs. Uh, mm-hmm. But what God does is to create a living image. It's not dead matter. It's not dead stuff. He's breathing into his image the breath of life. So there's this ongoing life uh, that, is, that is taking place in a relational life that's just very different from human self-glorification. That is, I think that's a really crucial point. I mean, if you're a listener to this show and you're thinking through, okay, what does my vocation mean? What does work mean? What does it mean to operate as an image bearer in the world? I think that is a really important place to just put a pin in that, that this original audience is not just being restoried in who they are, but being restoried in terms of how they should live in the world. Uh, Well, Go and ahead. we talked we talked in a previous episode about how this account is written to give Israel roots and shoots and he's mm-hmm. giving them some shoots here because think about it they're in the desert when they receive this so they're not in a fertile place they're not in a garden there is no fruitfulness and multiplication that's very evident around them in in agrarian terms and he gives them this lush image which actually sounds a lot like Egypt, where they came from, which was green and lush and was the breadbasket of the known world. Um, and he's saying, you know, this this gift of, of being those who who have dominion and rule and subdue, he's setting them up for, for going into Canaan. Mm-hmm, he's, yeah. he's giving them a, a look into what their purpose is going to be in that immediate sense. Now, obviously, there are much uh, richer layers to what is being said in Genesis 1 than just that. But that, for that original audience, is one of the immediate applications that they'll be able to take from it in the in the years ahead. I'd like to just maybe rewind a a moment because pastorally, I find that one of the areas of maybe burden is the wrong way, but heaviness that accompanies this passage is around the fruitful and multiplication side of things. Um, That there can be a uh, a heaviness associated with that, particularly for those who struggle with childbearing um, or have endured loss in that space or uh, who are not married or no longer married. When we think about the call, not just to cultivate and subdue, so that's a work different, done differently than the work that they've done for, uh, under Pharaoh and that Pharaohs were doing in the course of the world. What is um, for us when we hear be fruitful and multiply? Certainly God commends having children. They are a blessing and a gift. But what role does childbearing in child rearing play and fulfilling the cultural mandate and how does the church receive that even among those who are no longer of childbearing age or they're unable to bear children does that make sense the question i'm asking i, I know we've collectively we've heard these kind of concerns and burdens before from our people 
Yes, but think about the way that that language is being used uh, throughout the Bible. Abraham um, sees his descendants as being as many as the stars of the sky and the sands um, and the sands of the of the seashore. And then, how does that come to fulfillment in Galatians and and elsewhere? It comes to fulfillment through the new birth, uh, the great commission. The gospel is going forward and uh, is is being fruitful and multiplying. And so even people who are never going to uh, give birth to children uh, in some biological sense are still participating in that because they're yeah. part of the Great Commission, which means they're, they're, they're part of exactly what God is doing in filling uh, the, the world uh, with people through new birth, which means a sense of humility I mean, what one of the things that happens that comes along with the Christopher Hitchens, atheist uh, writer, used to say, fatherhood or motherhood is planned obsolescence because you know when you look at the next generation that that means somebody is going to replace you. And that's exactly true. And that's, that's difficult uh, for people who want to see themselves as self-sustaining gods to know the world's going to go on without yeah. me. Well, you don't have to right. be a, a a biological father or mother to see that happening all around you as the church goes forward. So if you look at, uh, for instance, what God says to Isaiah about uh, eunuchs who could not have children uh, at all, and and uh, the assumption is, well, that means that their name will die and that they'll die alone. And, and uh, God says, absolutely not. They'll have a name in this temple that I'm building, well, that's exactly what is happening uh, in the gospel. So when you pour your life out into the next generation um, in evangelism and in discipleship and uh, in serving, you're 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 being fruitful and multiplying throughout the world. I mean, I think that's really important for for listeners to hear um, that the Great Commission is a is it a is, is it a flowering? Is it a fulfillment? Is it a way to, is it a, the lenses with which we read the cultural mandate as Christians? I mean, what's the best picture there? Is it? Yeah, because if you think of, um, if you think of the way that Jesus speaks in Hebrews, for instance, where Jesus says, here, here I am. And I think you have echoes there of Adam, where are you? Hmm. And, and Adam's hiding uh, back in the vegetation, Jesus steps forward and says, here I am, and who? And the children mm -hmm. that you have given to me. Yeah. Jesus does not have biological children. Right. Uh, but what does he have? He has a, a countless number of, uh, of children that he's bringing before God through new birth. Uh, well, uh, just as we kind of land the plane here on our conversation, you mentioned something in passing uh, uh, earlier, but I want to circle back to it because I, I think it's really important. And as I've heard from listeners of Knowing Faith, when when we've scattered this idea in, it's been something that's been surprising to them. But the connection between the cultural mandate and this call to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, cultivate and subdue, and the limits of Eden. You know, I think when you grow up and you hear the story about the creation of the world, I grew up thinking, and I, and many listeners probably are thinking the same thing right now, that the whole world is Eden. Mm -hmm. That Eden is everything, that there isn't a place where uh, in creation that isn't everything. That the, But in, in Genesis 2, you actually get some like geographical coordinates of where Eden is at, right? It, mm -hmm. It's not the whole world. It's a specific place. But what is the relationship between God's call on his people 
um, in the cultural mandate and the limits of Eden. Are are they supposed to be expanding this? I mean, is the world beyond ta- uh, you know untamed? Is it disruptive? Is it bad? Is it broken? I mean, what? How does this relate to where God is calling Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, to take Eden? Yes, I th- I think that the uh, the world outside of Eden is uncultivated. Uh, you can you can even use the word wild, and uh, and what is humanity meant to do? Humanity is meant to cultivate, uh, which means different things in different contexts. In terms of um, in terms of agrarian uh, life, it means to to bring forth uh, fruit from and bread from the ground. In terms of the animal uh, world, it means to to tame and to uh, and to subdue that sort of of wildness. Which is why I think you have in in Mark chapter one, when Jesus goes out into the wild places, uh, the the text says the angels are ministering to him, and the wild beasts were with him. So Jesus here, as that uh, perfect image of God, the humanity of God, is able to be served by angels, which are created to be ministering spirits for humanity, and he is able to create harmony uh, with the wildness that is there. Well, why? Because I think the problem for humanity uh, going out um, from from Eden is explained in Romans chapter eight. It's uh, the best analogy I could use is is blackmail uh, and extortion. I mean, there's a uh, there's a reason why kids uh, used to do prank calls by calling up just a random telephone number and saying, "I know who you are and I know what you did," because they know. Anybody they call is going to have something that they're going to start uh, thinking about. Jesus doesn't have that. And so uh, he, he's able to just come forward fully as who he is with nothing to hide, completely in communion with his father and, and completely imaging who his father is and is able to put heaven and earth back together that way. Maybe before we wrap this up, Kyle, can I just ask one more question? No. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> because we definitely know who you are and yeah. we know what you did. So, yeah. Kyle, exactly. and we have it on tape. So, look, Kyle, you're breaking up. I can't hear you anymore. What'd you say? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Moore, I mean, I think one of the things I've appreciated, you know, over the course of our relationship, you were my teacher for a long time, and then also just learning from you from afar now, is is you're not just doing uh, theology for the sake of theology, but you're helping us pinpoint perhaps areas of our current world where we need to be thinking about how the implications of this theology land in our daily lives. As you're, as you're kind of looking at the landscape of, of, uh, of our world as it exists today, where would the church be uh, wise to think about this democratization or uh, the, the, the authority and power of what it means to reign and rule and represent on God's behalf? Where can the church be pointing our resources towards actually living out this image-bearing significance in our world? I think the main thing is constantly asking, uh, who am I trying to make invisible? Hmm. Or who am I trying to use as a means to an end and instrumentalize uh, around me? And to constantly be asking that question. So if you think of, um, for instance, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the, the rich man probably is giving no attention at all to Lazarus other than as a bit player in his life story, if that. But what you see uh, if from the perspective of God in the, in the story that Jesus is telling is that Lazarus is actually a central figure, that the rich man is the bit player. 
uh, in the, in the story mm-hmm. here. And so I think that we always have the tendency to to make certain people invisible to us, not paying attention to them. I'm always struck. Uh, there's a character, uh, Reverend Ames, in Marilyn Robinson's Gilead uh, novel, who says that every single person that he talks to, he's trained himself to ask, what is God asking of me in this encounter? Hmm. And when I read that, it really has changed my life because there are so many times when I feel like, you know, this, this conversation that I'm having right now with this person who just interrupted me is a, is a waste of time or is an interruption. Uh, or this is, you know, I really don't have time to be talking to this person about this or paying attention to that. But instead, when those things happen, to stop and to say, okay, what I'm seeing in front of me is a visual and imaginative representation of God, representation of Jesus. So I need to treat this the way that I would uh, any other sign of God. So if you think about, uh, you know, somebody who, even for the lowest church people, just about, if you have somebody who's going in and taking communion bread and sort of throwing it around uh, the church building or just, you know, chugging communion wine, you're going to come up and say, what are you doing? That is so disrespectful to our Lord, something that is signifying his body and his blood. But we tend to do that all the time with the mm. signs of, of Christ's mm-hmm. presence and the people around us. Mm. That's good. Wow, that's powerful. It is. It is. And Dr. Moore, I'm so grateful for your willingness to jump on the conversation with us today and to talk through this. Thank you for being here. Um, just honored for, by your time and by your work. It, it, listen, if you have not taken uh, taken a chance to grab one of Dr. Moore's books, I'm going to strongly encourage you to pick up a copy of his recently released, The Courage to Stand. Um, that has just come out. If you're listening to this in October, then I would really encourage you to pick that up uh, and to follow him online. In our next episode, we're going to be talking with Hannah Anderson, exploring Genesis chapter two and God's vision for the relationships between men and women. So we hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. Peace.